Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. Today, I'm so excited to bring you a living legend in the world of creativity. She's been an inspiration for so many creatives, from Elizabeth Gilbert to Alicia Keys to Pete Townsend and me. She's going to give you all the tools you need to find your passion, stoke the fire of positive self-talk, and form a healthier relationship with your inner critic. But before we jump in, I want to ask you a favor. If you love the show and it has helped you, please consider leaving it a rating and review. It really helps bring visibility to the show and push it up the chart so that we can help and connect with more creatives. Also, consider sharing the podcast on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Post a picture of yourself listening to it, tag at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Now to the guest. Her name is Julia Cameron. That's right. The Julia Cameron. She's the godmother of creativity and one of my personal heroes. Julia is an artist poet, playwright, novelist, filmmaker, journalist, music composer, and teacher. She's best known for her revolutionary book on creativity, The Artist's Way. The Artist's Way has sold over 5 million copies, has been translated into 40 different languages, and gave her the title The Queen of Change for starting a movement that brought creativity into mainstream conversation. Since The Artist's Way, she's gone on to write over 40 books, both fiction and nonfiction, in addition to music and musicals. She even has a quarantine-friendly Zoom play that she recently wrote starring Nick, her assistant, who is also an excellent actor, who you'll hear all about on the show. Angie has a brand new book that came out yesterday called The Listening Path, which we will take a deep dive into on the show. I wanted to have Julia on the show for all the reasons that I just stated, and because most importantly, without Julia, I'm not sure this podcast would exist. Back in 2017, I was lost. I was going through a really difficult time in my life when I found her book, and it's really a course, The Artist's Way. Doing The Artist's Way got me thinking about the meaning of creativity in my own life, the world, and how much we need to take care of our inner child. It made me realize how my own repressed creativity was causing me so much suffering. Her book helped me begin to unleash my inner creative and spark the flame in me to help others do the same in their own lives. Her insight, artistry, humanity, connectedness, and courage are inspiring. Plus, she just has really amazing actionable tools that will help you move toward creativity in your life. Her presence is a brilliant reminder that we can all be ambassadors of creativity, that the more you spread, the more you have. Today, you're going to learn how to creatively unblock, gain practical tools that will give you the confidence you need to pursue your passion, find the comfort and wisdom in silence, find a larger vision for your life, listen and trust your higher self, work with and name your inner critic, why creativity and spirituality are intrinsically linked, and the importance of fun and humor in your creative journey. Please welcome the great Julia Cameron. Julia, you have been such an incredible inspiration to me, to my creative journey, and to my mission to help other people be creative. I really think when I trace the lines of my inspiration to start seeing other people and seeing the creativity in them, it was when I started The Artist's Way and uh, was doing the morning pages every morning. 
And I came to realize that repressed creativity is the cause of so much of the world's suffering. And I found your book and you helped me unleash. And so being here with you, the godmother of creativity is just one of the greatest honors of my life. So thank you. You're very welcome. I read the description of the show and I said to Nick, oh, it's right up my alley. Yes, it is indeed. You basically paved the alley and then I was like, you know what? That's a good alley to walk down. I'd like to do the same. So I want to start at the beginning because I know you believe as I believe that creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. And so I'm wondering when you trace the lines of your life and look back at little Julia, or as I know you called her, Julie, what would you say was the inciting incident of your creative journey? Aha. I think it was Peter Mundy. He moved to our town from the South and he had a voice like Tupelo Honey. I wanted him to fall in love with me. And I was 12 and just old enough to start thinking about things like falling in love. So I wrote a short story for Peter, uh, and Peter fell in love with Peggy Conroy instead, and I fell in love with writing. Oh, well, that's a lasting love story, so I'd say that was a successful courtship. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's interesting, too, because I, I was listening to a podcast you did, and you talked about how with your first marriage, you got a proposal soon after you gave Martin Scorsese writing tips on his script, right? Like you, you gave him tips on the script and then he like instantly proposed. So I'm seeing a theme here as well. Well, I think I fell in love with him because he was so profoundly funny. And people don't think of Martin as being funny. They think of him as being dark, but he's hilarious. And I fell in love with him. And I read his, he gave me a taxi driver, the script to read. Uh, and I read it and I thought, parts of this don't work. Oh, dear. And then I just sat down and wrote new parts and took it into him the next day and said, I don't think certain scenes have worked. Try these. And um, I, at the time, was a journalist and I had gotten to um, to have a sense of scene and dialogue and all very concise because of my journalism. So he read the script over and he said, I'm going to use it. Thank you. And shortly thereafter, he proposed. <laughs> you talk about, too, in that interview I listened to, how you always had this internal belief in yourself. I mean, even when the odds are really stacked against you when you were going to college and they told you women can't be writers, you just had this inner knowing that you were going to write. Where do you think that came from? Well, I think I'm lucky. I came from a family with seven children and my older sister was a writer. My next brother was a musician. My next sister was a painter. My next sister was a writer. My next sister was a writer, and we were all imitating my mother, who um, never told us, oh, sweetheart, don't you think you might need something to fall back on? Mm -hmm. She just believed in us. Our house was a big yellow house in the woods. We all drew as well as wrote, as well as played piano. 
And what she would do is she would take our drawings and post them along the staircase going from the first floor to the second floor. So we were very young getting validation. I think I was very lucky uh, that my parents just believed in creativity. Absolutely. And I love, you even talked about in the listening path about how your mom would call you to the piano and there was just always such a culture of creativity in the house you were growing up in. But, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have that sort of base growing up. There's something you talk about in The Artist's Way, Creative Monsters, which is this idea really resonated with me. And you had us write a letter to the editor to your creative monsters. I know you do talk about how you still have inner critics and you have an inner critic in your life. What was his name? I wrote it down. Nigel. Nigel. (laughs) So for you, because you did have that good creative foundation growing up, like where would you say you picked up your inner critics or creative monsters along the way? Well, I went to a public school for a year before I was transferred to the Catholic school. Uh, And at the public school, there was a... um, teacher who was negative. I wanted to write on the school newspaper. And she said, oh, you're much too young. Seniors can write on the school newspaper, but not you. So I began to take in the idea that not everybody was going to approve of me. And then when I got to the Catholic school, I had a nun, Sister Julia Claire Green, BVM, Uh, And she was on fire, and she loved poetry, and she taught us that it was quite accessible and that we could all learn freely from her. Mm. Uh, And when I told her I wanted to write on the school newspaper, she said, wonderful. (laughs) So she was a support. So what do you believe the inner critic is? Do you believe that it's those critical voices that we pick up along the years repurposed as our own voice? Or for you, you found a different voice for it. But like, where do you think it comes from? I think the critic can come from your parents. I luckily didn't have it with my parents. From a hostile teacher, as I ran into, from competing with people who are further along the trail than you. And you just begin to to think, I'm a little bit weaker than I thought. And Nigel has been with me since I was 18 years old. He's a gay British interior decorator, and I can never live up to his standards. And he speaks up. People will sometimes say to me, Julia, I have a critic, and I want to get rid of it. I'll say, well, I have 52 years experience with Nigel, and I feel that there's no getting rid of the critic, but what you can do is miniaturize the critic. And that's what the morning pages do. So let's get into that. I want to talk about, first of all, the artist's way, like I I didn't conceptualize when I first did it that you wrote this in the early 90s. Like no one was talking about this in the early 90s. So you were doing something totally revolutionary. And I've heard you talk about it. You didn't really realize that you were just trying to find tools and they started working and then you started sharing them and it just blew up into this thing. But I'm wondering, did you experience any backlash from putting out this course that was speaking about things that 
no one was talking about at that time, like the intersection of creativity and spirituality and self-actualization? I was afraid I was going to be punished. When the book took off, when we published it, we published a small number, and we thought it was going to be a little teeny California book for just a few people. And then what happened is word of mouth spread, the book spread, and I began to be frightened that I would be trapped, quote, as a teacher and not be an artist. I didn't yet realize that unblocking other people would keep me unblocked, which is how it has worked out. Creativity is contagious, and speaking to a class about creativity, I found myself happy. It's now 42 years later or something like that, and I love teaching. Yeah. I was afraid of being punished. I was afraid of being trapped, but my fears were just boogeymen, and the book had a destiny. And where did the idea for the artist's way come from, if you had to say? Well, it did come from my own journey. I discovered things, morning pages, three pages of longhand morning writing that I did every day, and I discovered that unblocked me. So I thought, I'll just tell my friend Ed who's blocked. And Ed started doing morning pages and he unblocked. And I thought, far out. (laughs) So I found myself following my own lead. And where the ideas came from were, I was lucky. I'm sort of a, a little magnet. So when someone has a good idea, I snatch it. (laughs) And what happened to me was that I began writing three pages a day. uh, And then I began writing three pages a day on movie scripts. And then I found that I was leading a little posse of people. I had like 10 friends who were blocked. And I thought I was writing the book to them. And Of course, we found out it unblocked many more people. Yeah, like 10 people, but lots of different groups of 10 people, millions. (laughs) That's amazing. That is truly amazing. I always say sometimes the dreams we find on the way to our dreams are even more powerful than our original intention. That's true. Yeah. You know, it's like our vision for our lives is so much smaller than what it can be when we stay open, when we listen, right? Well, I was thinking uh, that I was going to be a Hollywood screenwriter. uh, And I had been encouraged in this belief by Martin's belief in me. And I found myself stymied. Hollywood was pretty destructive to artists. And you know that from living in Los Angeles. And I found uh, that I would write movies and sell them and then they wouldn't get made. And it was breaking my heart. I was living in New York, and I went running away to New Mexico. And this was before New Mexico was hip. I moved into a little adobe house looking out at a big mountain. And I started getting up in the morning before my daughter woke up. And I could usually get about three pages done before she would wake up. And what happened was 
that I got about 90 days into the pages and all of a sudden a character came strolling in and I went, oh my God, I could be a novelist. So that was my first first screenwriting, then novel writing, then poetry, then plays. They've all unfolded as an idea that starts in morning pages with, why don't you try this? And I think, I couldn't. And then I do. And so just to be completely clear for someone who doesn't have context, the morning pages are three pages that you write. Basically, whatever comes to your mind, as soon as you wake up, you say, spend 45 minutes on it. And I love the way you talk about them. You almost endow them with a, I don't know if I want to say godlike reverence, but such a reverence that they have like their own intelligence to them. Well, they do. I think what happens when you start writing morning pages is that you wake up to your authentic self because Jungians tell us we have 45 minutes before our defenses are in place. So I'm saying, quick, use that, use that 45 minutes and see what happens. Uh, and what happens is that we start to get ideas of expansion. Morning pages expand us. We start out, it says something like, wouldn't it be fun to write music? And you think, I can't do that. And then they say, you're going to write radiant songs. And you say, I can't do that. And then they say, start. (laughs) And you do. And what happens is that you become a much larger size than your initial conception of yourself. And I think it's important to say, that morning pages put you in touch with the benevolent something that is friendly to you and your goals. And that before you do morning pages, you may think, well, it's just my ego. And after you do morning pages, you think, no, I'm being called. Yes. I love, because you just spoke about the music and getting called to to write music and that did happen to you. Yes. And as you mentioned, you come from a family of musicians. And I love the part in the book where you basically come out as a musician to your brother. <laughs> and you you first told him that you were working with this new composer and they were so great. You didn't tell him it was you. And then once you told him it was you, he was like, well, you need to work on this. I found this part to be so fascinating because so many people do have to come out as an artist or a creative to their family or someone who's close to them, who's viewed them in a different way. I wonder if you could advise them on the best way to do that while taking care of themselves and their art and also being honest. Okay, this is multiple questions. Yes. The answer is very simple. Do morning pages. Write three pages of longhand writing that leads you ahead. Pages are contagious. People start to get curious. People in our family start to wonder, what are you doing every day? Why are you doing it? And you say, never mind, I'm just doing it. It's my business. And you keep them private and they become incredibly enticing. Pages are a witness to your life. You tell them, here's what I'm worried about. Pages have a very kindly tone. And they are wonderful as a place for you to vent. 
So you vent in your pages. I'm afraid to tell my brother I'm a musician. And then when your brother says, well, maybe you need more work. Whereas before he was saying, oh, he's brilliant. You realize, oh, my brother is a victim too of the family mythology. You know, my brother Christopher is a brilliant composer. And he couldn't get it through his head that I could write music too. Even though we had a musical done in Chicago and he went to see it, uh, but he couldn't believe that I had done it. So how did you respond to that when he couldn't believe that you had done it? Well, this is when I said I was afraid of being trapped. And what I had done was run away to England to hide from my fame as an artist wave teacher. When I was in England, there was nobody there who knew my story. Nobody there thought, oh, you're not a musician. So I had a little teeny piano, which I'll show you. Okay. I wrote my musicals on this. Oh. It was less threatening to me than a big piano. It was just a little teeny piano. And um, I found when I was playful that I was confident. And I think this is something that we need to talk about, uh, the need for people to have a humorous view. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about creativity, we think we have to be very serious. And what I have found is that there is a second tool. First of all, is the tool of morning pages, which we've talked about. But secondly, once a week, you go out on an expedition for something that's fun. Yes. This is where we get the expression, the play of ideas. The play of ideas is actually a prescription. If you play, you will have ideas. So what I think you're speaking of right now is the artist date, correct? Exactly. And so the artist date, as I understand it, is a time in the week when you go out and you basically, you I think of it as honoring my inner child. So like, what would little Lauren like to do? How can I serve her? Like, can I go, you know, to, I think you give an example of like, go to a bead shop and buy some things that might excite you and like string together a necklace or you can go to a toy shop. There's like so many different things you can do. But something I've been thinking about, Julia, is because we're in this very unique time in human history, especially in the States where we can't go places as easily as we once might have been able to. How do you see the artist date shifting during this time period, or does it have to shift? Well, I think it does have to shift because as it's originally intended, you go out of the house to a foreign environment. And now we're saying, now stay home. And what could you do that's fun? And you think, fun? And then you think, well, I could take a bubble bath. I could make chocolate chip cookies. I could try sketching. So you are looking for a way to entertain yourself. I visualize the inner artist that you're talking about as being about eight years old. And 
maybe what would happen is that you could write a simple children's story or a, a little teeny poem without the emphasis on excellence with the emphasis on fun. Yes. You know, that's so interesting that you say that too, because you were talking about in in this interview I listened to where before you got sober, you were always focused on impressing others and being brilliant. And after you got sober, you were focused on the truth. I think a lot of people who wouldn't consider themselves alcoholics also struggle with that, like with making ego driven art versus soul driven is the way I would frame it. If someone out there is in the midst of that, I mean, obviously the morning pages, the artist dates, the walks, but is there any other tool you would want to endow them with to start going toward truth? This is where I feel the pages lead you. So I, I have never felt a need to invent a second tool because the first tool works so well. So I think that when people are too serious, they need to write little ditties. I wrote a mystery novel, uh, and it got 19 good reviews and one bad review. And the bad review was in the New York Times. I was crushed. Uh, I felt like I should go outside in New York wearing sackcloth and ashes. and. Um, Then I thought, I need some humor. I'm taking this much too seriously. So I wrote, this little poem goes out to Bill Kent, he's the reviewer, who must feel awful the way that he spent his time reviewing Carl Jung instead of on the book I'd done. So just the the little ditty gave me my power back. Yeah. Humor is power. And I think that the morning pages lead us to lightheartedness. And then when you take an artist's date, you're reinforcing the lightheartedness. You're saying to yourself, oh, I am powerful. But you're saying it like a naughty eight-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting back to remembering why you wanted to do this in the first place. And I love that. I'm a musician as well. And when I put out my first single, I got a couple of reviews like the one you got, it sounds like. And I did a whole show about rejection. And at the end, I had my mom come on. She kind of was like my letter letter to the editor. And she wrote a little review of the reviewers that rejected me. And it was, I mean, we were like everyone in the room because I had a co-host for that. We were laughing hysterically, but you're so right. Bringing the humor into those moments takes your power back. It makes you realize, you know what? I wasn't doing it for you. I was doing it because it came through me and I had to get it out. And hopefully it resonates with some people. But in the meantime, I'm going to laugh about this and get back to the joy. Exactly. I love that. And you have such a good smile. I wonder if people don't find joy just looking at you. Ah, thank you, Julia. You are so amazing. I um. I love this this new book, The Listening Path. Thank you. It is a six-week course. I, I was curious, why six weeks? Was it because of the six different types of listening you wanted people to know? How did that number come to you? It was because of the different types of listening. And um, when 
we had five weeks and then I realized, oh, people need to learn to listen not only to sound, but to silence. And silence became the sixth week. Yes. That one is, for me, definitely the most intense. I'm assuming that's the reason you left it at the end, because you have to go through the other steps in order to be able to even like inch towards silence. Yes. (laughs) So, okay, let's go through the six different types of listening proposed in the book. Listening to our environment, listening to others, listening to our higher self, listening beyond the veil, otherwise known as those who've passed on, listening to our heroes, and listening to silence. Why these six and why this order? Again, you're bringing me back to something that comes from practice. I, I live alone atop a mountain with a little dog. Lily. Lily. And um, it's quiet. And what we could hear in the quiet was the trilling of songbirds. And I thought, oh, I need to listen more carefully. They're delightful. And then I thought, I'm going to ask my friends what they feel about listening. And I began to interview people. And they said, well, the most important thing about listening is not to interrupt. And I thought, oh, we do interrupt. Someone starts to say something, and we think we know where they're going, and we leap in. And what I found is that if we don't leap in, people share amazing things. They have a much greater depth to their conversations than when we are cutting them off. So then I thought, well, I've listened to other people. I think I need to listen to myself. And the walking tool became a tool of listening to my higher self. Yesterday was the five-year anniversary of my friend Jane Cecil's death. Mm. Jane was a mentor to me in life. And I would talk to her every day. And she would give me pithy guidance. She was very humorous. Uh, And when she died, I was bereft. I was used to talking to Jane every day. And then I realized, well, maybe I can still talk to Jane. So I started saying, can I hear from Jane? And I began listening. And sure enough, Jane's voice came to me through the ethers and said, I'm right by your side. Mm. You're on track. There's no error in your path. So I found when I wrote the book, I thought, oh, dear God, people are going to think I'm so woo-woo talking to dead people. But I recently taught a course in London. And when we got to this week, the whole class exploded. It turned out that far from thinking I was too woo-woo, they thought I was maybe just woo-woo enough. I agree. (laughs) To give them permission. And people have been waiting for permission to reach to the other side. So that brings us to heroes. Heroes 
were people that I wished I had met that I had never met. And you mentioned before my sobriety. And I have a hero, Bill Wilson, who was a co-founder of AA. And he forged a path that millions of people have followed. And I found him very reassuring. I also like Carl Jung. I also like Dick Francis, who writes horse racing novels. So after you listen to your heroes, you listen to silence. That's the one, Julia. I got to get comfortable with that. But I love that you make it so accessible in the book. You stair step us up. So we start with three minutes and then eventually aim to get to 20. Right. I promise I'll try. (laughs) Well, silence is very threatening to people. Yeah. And especially a live wire like yourself would find silence to be a little bit intimidating. You might find yourself thinking, oh, I don't know what thoughts I'm going to run into. And we sort of worry that in silence, we're going to come to a feeling of self-condemnation and criticism. We get quiet and we're going to turn on ourselves. And what happens actually with silence is that it's encouraging. We start to listen to silence and we start to hear a benevolent something. People may not want to call it God. They may call it the muse the force, the higher power, uh, even Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) But what happens is that in silence, they are put in touch with a source of guidance in themselves. It reinforces the guidance that you get in morning pages. I love that you talked about, I think it was in the book, about the redefining of God for yourself. I also grew up Catholic, so... I feel united to you in in that way as many as well as many others. But I think just redefining God is such a powerful thing. Like almost for me, it was important for me to take back that word and redefine it for myself as a all knowing, all loving force that is both male and female and is you and is me and is Lily and all beautiful things in the world. But how did you go about redefining God for yourself? What was that path like for you? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, when I got sober, I was told by some other people who were sober that I needed to have a higher power that I could do business with. And I said, you don't understand. 16 years of Catholic education, the greased slide to agnosticism. And they said, well, you must believe in something. And I thought about it. And I asked a friend what she believed in. And she said, oh, I believe in Mick Jagger. I pray to Mick Jagger. And I asked another friend and she said, oh, I pray to sunspots. And I thought, well, clearly the higher power can be anything. I think I will believe in a line from Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower, that creative energy, that pure life-enhancing, loving, expansive energy. And I thought, I can trust that. So that became my higher power. And later, Lily. Oh, good. (laughs) Hi, friend. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I've just met a celeb. She has the biggest, I mean, I know her. I know her from the way you wrote her in the book. I fully know her personality. She is, wow, such an elegant girl. And I think it's important. Maybe we can show Nick for a second. Yes. Yes. Come on in, Nick. Nick is Julie's assistant. And a wonderful actor and a wonderful poet. And we share artist to artist, and it's a wonderful thing. And he is Lily's great devoted love. When he comes to the door, she goes skittering to the door going, Nick, Nick, Nick. And um, I'm a little jealous. Maybe she's just playing hard to get. Oh, I love her. I feel honored to meet her. And I love too. I just want to take a minute to point out because this is just a great example of leadership that you honor all of who Nick is, that you point out the fact that he's an incredible actor and a poet and that you talk artist to artist. And I try to do that with anyone I work with as well. And I just want to encourage anyone listening that if you work with somebody who is also an artist, see the whole of who they are, because it's just such a beautiful gift you give someone when you truly see them and hear them. So we have a website, juliacameronlive.com. And on that website, you can go to a play, which we did on Zoom, called Love in the DMZ. And you can watch Nick's actions and you'll say, oh, indeed, I see why she says he's such a wonderful actor. Okay, I'm going to put that in the show notes and I'm going to watch that as soon as we wrap. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to see it. So that's beautiful. So you, you redefined God for yourself really as like 
life force energy, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Julia, do you think that creativity and spirituality are indivisible? I do believe that. I believe if you work on your spirituality, your creativity wakes up. And if you work on your creativity, your spirituality wakes up. So I believe they're tightly interwoven. And I think for me, I went through a period where I wanted to look at what I had been brought up to believe. Uh, And my childhood God was male, authoritarian, harsh, judgmental. And I had a whole list of negative traits that I had somehow pulled out of Catholicism. And then I thought, well, what is my creativity God like? And I thought, oh, festive, funny, loves to (laughs) cha-cha. And I came up with a, a list of traits that I wanted to believe in a creative power. Uh, And then I realized that those were traits that were actually in the creative power. Mm. So coming back to listening, which obviously listening and God are also interconnected, but I love when you talked about listening to like the soundscape or the sonic environment you're in. This is something I have done since college. Like I would harmonize, my college air conditioner was really loud. So I'd harmonize with it. And then I heard Billy Joel talk about how, you know, hear music everywhere. So then I started thinking from that perspective. And so if my upstairs neighbor was playing a really loud sound, I would try to find like a melody to go over the song. And so I love that you were pointing this out because it's something that it's not just applicable to musicians, it's applicable to everyone, but you were even talking about hearing the soundtrack of your life. So like there's a clock ticking in this room and really taking that in and asking, how does that sit with me? What is the power of listening to the soundtrack of your day and why is it a good thing to find sounds that are pleasing to you? Well, I think what what we do with unpleasant sound is we tune it out. Uh, and I think when we tune something out, we deaden ourselves. Mm. When we start to tune in to, could I have a more pleasant alarm clock? We begin to think, oh, I'm worth something. I'm worthy of a good soundtrack. I want to talk a minute about Emma Lively who has worked with me for 22 years. Emma is a composer who has written six musicals. And she says she listens into the void and finds music there. She said she had a teacher who said, music is everywhere. Composers are the people who go looking for it. Yeah. I see you nodding. It sounds to me like you identify. I do. I know that's true. I think too, I mean, because I know you discovered you were a composer later in life. I I didn't know I could write music till I was 23, which isn't old, but I, it's kind of a long time to go without knowing you could do something that's that important to you. And I think about the fact that like to that point, I was always writing songs, but no one in my family wrote music. Like we didn't know, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a possibility for me. And so I always think about the fact that like 
those songs were just like building up in my body until they were ready to come out. And that what you just said also resonates in a similar way where I was hearing the songs the whole time, or you were hearing the songs the whole time, but you just didn't recognize that that was music to come through you until you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's powerful. It's possibility. When you listen, it's possibility. I think that's a very accurate way to put it. And you had this conversation with an artist named Pamela in the book. And there were a few nuggets I really took from that conversation you had with her. But one of the things she said is, listening is love. Love is connection. There's no art without connection. Mm -hmm. And it struck a chord because we're in a stage in our world where people are dehumanizing each other with reckless abandon, where we're not listening to each other, where there's a real lack of compassion, a real lack of empathy, a real lack of connection, of seeing that this person who holds an opposing viewpoint to me is also human. I'm wondering what role you think listening plays in the revolution of humanity. I think it's pivotal. I think it's pivotal. I think I wrote The Listening Path as a sort of manifesto saying, you need to think about this. It's part of your daily life. Wake up. I think the book is a wake-up call. Uh, And I think that listening brings us to connection. Connection brings us to compassion. And that's how I'd say they're related. Yeah. When did you finish the book? About a year ago. Okay. That's what I thought. I go, she was definitely talking to spirit because this is like the moment it needs to come through. It's never been more needed than this exact moment. Thank you. Thank you. I do have a couple more questions about the listening, especially like talking with your past on loved ones or talking with heroes. I was curious because with all the heroes you named, they were passed on. Let's say, for instance, Oprah is one of my heroes. Could I also have a conversation with her even though she's still of this earth? I think you can. There's a chapter in the book called Listening to Your Higher Self. Uh, And when you are in your higher self, you're in an expanded state. Uh, And I think that when you're in your higher self, you can say, I'd like to hear from Oprah's higher self. Uh, And you listen, and you do indeed hear calm, directed, guided information. So my experience with it uh, is that Yes, I could talk to Nick's higher self. He goes hiking in the mountains every day. And I could go, Nick, inspire me. (laughs) Help me to walk. And what happens is when he shows up later in the day, we've made a connection. And how do you define the higher self? I think the word is old-fashioned. But the word I would use is soul, that the higher self is a you without fear. Do you think we can be without fear? I have a girlfriend who gets up every morning at 4.30, and she sits quiet until 6.30, and she watches the sun come up, and I 
say to her, Scotty, how are you? And she says, I'm excellent. She says, I pray for ease and joy. And my life is filled with ease and joy. So I think uh, that for most of us, we have to be content with diminishing fear, that we reach for a calmer, more guided self. I've been writing a book on guidance. uh, And I think uh, that when we write for guidance, we say, can I hear from X about X? And we listen. And we hear calm wisdom. Uh, and writing it down means that you can go back and reread it later. And when you do, you find that you have a wiser, kinder self that's apparent to you through guidance. So I don't know that I can get to be like Scotty. And Scotty says she's never afraid. And I keep thinking, what would that be like? I'm often afraid. Yeah. I read that in the book because Scotty, I think besides obviously you, number one, then Lily's personality comes through the second strongest. And then Scotty, it's like she really jumps off the page. Like I, I feel like I know her as well. But when I read that, I was like, that has to be hyperbolic. I don't think that could be true. But it's amazing. And it is inspirational that she actually lives without fear. Let's all try to be a little bit more like Scotty. (laughs) (laughs) You also talk about, which is such an important point, the difference between your heart and your intellect. What is that difference for you and why do you veer toward your heart? I think we're trained to veer toward our intellect. I think we spend a lot of time thinking, I just need to be smart enough to figure this out. And we turn our focus to our thinking instead of to our feeling. And I think what we need to do more of is listen to the heart, which will tell us a gentler, wiser, more long-range path than the intellect. The intellect is a little smarty. Mm -hmm. As I said before I got sober, I was very attuned to my intellect. I wanted to be thought clever, clever, clever. And after I got sober, I began to listen to my heart, uh, and I began to find a way that was gentler and more wise, and I would like to use the word tender. Mm. The heart leads us to tenderness. And you even said that your heart knew better. Like there, There was this part where you said you had scrapped a book because your intellect was telling you it was great but your heart knew better. So it's not just that it's gentler. It also seems that it's wiser. Yes, exactly. You know, it's interesting too. Like even when you were talking about that, I was asking myself, like, what does my heart feel? And instantly I heard a little voice say like, you're doing great. You're going to be okay. Bravo. That's what I'm talking about, about the higher self speaking to you. Uh, And if you write that down, Uh, You can reread it and it calms you down. Yeah, it's like a deep energy kind of takes the frenetic feeling, which I have a tendency to go into and just brings it down Mm -hmm. and you're grounded. Yes. Beautiful. So Julia, this has been one of the biggest honors of my entire life. You are 
such a special soul. You walk the walk. I can't thank you enough for your time. I do have one final question that I ask everybody about our little self, about little Julie. And if you and eight-year-old Julie were standing in the same room and she was looking at you now today, what do you think your younger self would say to you and why? Write some more music. It's fun. (laughs) It's good advice. And what would you say to her and why? Well, take out your little piano uh, and try and find the keys for your songs uh, and listen to what they say. In the center of your heart is a still small part, like a meadow in a forest made of green. In the center of your heart is a still small part, and that is where your soul must go to dream. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that you shared. And I love that song. Thanks to you and little Julie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my guest, Julia Cameron. For more info on Julia, follow her at Julia Cameron live on Instagram and at J underscore Cameron live on Twitter. To learn more about her other projects, video courses, and watch her Zoom play, Love in the DMZ, with the very talented Nick, go to juliacameronlive.com. And be sure to get her book, The Listening Path. It's out everywhere good books are found, and I highly, highly recommend it. It's been super helpful in my creative journey. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. You can follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow the show on Spotify, share the show with a friend, and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Julia at Julia Cameron Live so she can share too. My wish for you this week is that you really listen. Listen to your heroes. Listen to your higher power. Listen to silence. Listen to your surroundings. Listen to your heart. I can't wait to see what you create from what you hear. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.